Howdy, welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I am your host, Jake McAtee, and this week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Oz Guinness for his new book, The Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. And one book off the canon shelf that I thought about as we talked was Slaying Leviathan by Glenn Sunshine, Limited Government and Resistance in the Christian Tradition. Because one of the main focuses of the book is to answer the question of how are we to respond to the threats to liberty we are facing. Starting to answer that question begins with this book, We Are Remarkably Unaware of Our Christian History. Similarly, Oz's book focuses a ton on history, primarily the revolutions, and with the addition of the Sinai Revolution in Exodus. You can find Glenn's book at canonpress.com. And you can find Oz's book anywhere books are sold. Without further ado, meet Dr. Oz Guinness. All right, now welcoming onto the show special guest Oz Guinness. He is the author or editor of more than 30 books, including Last Call for Liberty, Impossible People, and Fool's Talk. A frequent speaker and prominent social critic, he's on the show today to discuss his brand new book, The Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. Dr. Oz, thanks so much for coming on. Jake, it's a real pleasure. Thank you. Of course. So, The Magna Carta of Humanity, what did you see happening that caused you to write this book? Well, the Magna Carta is not what I'm writing about, the original one in 1215. Okay. But that's become a symbol in the English-speaking world of freedom and staking out justice against the abuse of power. And I'm arguing that the deeper, richer, higher Magna Carta of humanity is the Exodus Revolution, which you read about in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. And many Americans don't realize that the American Revolution owes everything through the Reformation to Exodus and Deuteronomy. And many of the deepest political ideas, the simple ones, come from there. So that's what the book is about. It's about the historical roots, but in a constructive way, looking at what needs to be recovered today. Awesome. So so getting our bearings, uh, just in the introduction there, uh, I thought was one of my uh, favorite parts of the book is you laid out in simplest forms the argument you just talked about. You talk about the Amer- current American crisis being filled by similar elements that fueled the years uh, 1776 and 1789. Could you tell us a little bit about those years? Well, there's no secret that America today is deeply divided, the great polarization. The question is, why? You know, some say the social media, some blame the previous president, some say it's the coastals against the heartlanders, some say it's the nationalists and populists over against the globalists, all sorts of reasons. But I think if you look deeper, the real division, the most important one in America, is between those who understand the republic and freedom from the perspective of 1776, which I I said, The revolution was largely owed everything to the scriptures. And those who see the Republican freedom from the perspective of 1789, the French Revolution and its heirs, because people don't understand that. Suddenly this year, many people all around the country are focusing on critical race theory. But that's actually only one part of what's come out of a movement that's called 
neo-Marxism, cultural Marxism, Western Marxism. And it goes back right back to the 1920s, and we really need to understand it well. Interesting that you you said the 1920s. Is it? I would have thought you would go further back. Is there a reason why the 1920s? Well, the French Revolution only lasted 10 years in France. And in 1799, Napoleon came along as a dictator and said, the revolution is over. So we're not talking about France today. Right. Like a volcanic explosion, the French Revolution had kind of three great lava flows. And you're right, they go back much earlier. The first in the 19th century was revolutionary nationalism. Napoleon himself, Greece, Italy, beginnings of secular Zionism, and even Hitler in the 20th century was a great admirer of the French Revolution, national socialism, and so on. The second lava flow is the one everyone's aware of, revolutionary socialism, or in one word, communism, designed in the 19th, but coming out in the Russian Revolution, 1917, and the Chinese Revolution in 49. But we're talking about, that's why I said the 20s, we're talking about the third great lava flow. And this is the one many Americans and most Christians aren't aware of. And it goes back to Antonio Gramsci, who was a communist, sat in jail under Mussolini, died in jail. But he tried to figure out why Marx was wrong. And he shifted Marxism from economic determinism to cultural determinism. You had to win the cultural gatekeepers, the elite. Now, his ideas were picked up by the Frankfurt School from the 30s right through to the 60s. And in 1960s, one of those, Herbert Marcuse, was really the godfather of the new left in America, especially in California. And towards the end of the 60s, this is the key point, he and the leader of the Red Brigade in Germany, Rudi Deutschke, called for a long march through the institutions. And that's a key idea. In other words, they wouldn't win in the streets, radical protests and all that. You had to win the schools and colleges and universities and the press and the media and the world that they call the culture industry, Hollywood entertainment, win those through a long march and end run, and then you win the whole culture. And you can see 50 years later, they've essentially done it. You know, you could add in later movements like postmodernism from France in the 60s or the super funding of radical left people like George Soros in the early uh, 21st century. But you can see that cultural Marxism giving us postmodernism, political correctness, the sexual revolution, the cultural revolution, and so on. These things, cancel culture, speech codes, all that we're looking at now comes out of this cultural Marxism. And Christians really need to open their eyes and understand what's at stake. So do you see that as being one of the most effective plays run was Gramsci's Long March? It's been incredibly effective. (laughs) Yeah. Incredibly effective. I don't think that many people have read Gramsci, but, you know, he wrote 3,000 pages in his notebooks and so on, which was smuggled out of the jail. And they are read by, I've, I've tried to read it. It's not exactly every day. But, <laughs> you know, and, and a mark of the cultural Marxist left is their cantankerous spirit among the intellectuals and their very obscure jargon. 
Okay. But it's very powerful. And when it comes down, say, through Antifa or through Black Lives Matter or through Occupy Wall Street, you see the street-level face of the movements. And, right. of course, you have now in the schools and in many of our universities. So you've got Ivy League universities that are one-party faculties. You've got many of America's newsrooms that are one-party newsrooms. You've got California that's a one-party state. If under the present administration, we would have seen increasing consolidation of politics, bureaucracy, the media, entertainment world, and then, of course, woke business, you could have a one-party national politics, which would be not only the death of the republic, it would be the death of democracy. And increasingly, democracy is being overshadowed by the rising oligarchy of the ruling elite who are the experts, the best and the brightest, who know how the rest of us, the deplorables and so on, people who are now clinging still to our guns and our God, right. as Obama said, you know, they know what's best for us. And so America is increasingly no longer a republic, but increasingly no longer even a democracy. And that's the challenge of where we are now. My argument is we should see a homecoming. In other words, going back because you know the Hebrew word teshuvah, repentance, includes that dimension of homecoming. It's not just like metanoia and about turn of heart and mind and spirit. It's a coming home because sin in the scriptures are seen as exile and alienation. And so we need to come home. And America needs to come home. Now, come home to the best of the founding principles and confess and repent and turn around from awful hypocrisies and evils such as slavery and racism. So this this uh, sort of genre of book uh, is, seems to be popping up more and more as sort of a, um, you know, I think I've seen uh, Ben Shapiro wrote one not long ago of, of uh, I forget the title of it, but I know Jonah Goldberg wrote Suicide of the West. There's sort of a, a genre of book happening right now where conservative thinkers are, are seeing sort of a degradation of the West and are trying to write on towards a stop of that. I think the reason I jumped at your book and, and the interview was this sort of call to the homecoming and and really, as you talked about it, sort of a call to the Sinai revolution. Do you feel yourself in the in the space writing a unique book to those kinds of other conservative books? Did you feel that as you were writing it that that this is a uh, this is not what everybody else is calling everyone else to? Well, I'm a follower of Jesus. So I'm not American, but I'm a great admirer of the American experiment at its best. So I don't argue conservative, liberal, left, right, and these sort of things. Left and right are actually, as you know, a reflection of the French Revolution. Right. No side sat on which side of the Speaker in the National Assembly. <laughs> so I'm not interested in that. Right. But my argument is that what we see in Exodus and Deuteronomy is the deepest revolution, the highest view of freedom the highest view of human dignity, and the strongest critique of the abuse of power. So my book's much more constructive. I, you know, this is the third book I've got on freedom. The first one was using Abraham Lincoln's title, Free People's Suicide. You know, so I know what they're saying, but I'm not just decrying the darkness or trying to raise up people against the left. No, something much more important is at stake the highest view of freedom in all human history is the biblical view. 
Now, it's, it's odd, Jake, if you take freedom, obviously Exodus is over against Egypt, the anti-culture. Right. It's over against Babylon, over against Persia. It's also over against Greece. You take Oedipus Rex. Behind the notion of freedom in Greece was fate, Moira, necessity. And what's remarkable is that's also true of modern atheism. Because of their naturalism, science can't ground freedom. So the great atheists, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and others, they're all determinists. They don't give you a strong view of freedom. The biblical view of freedom is unique. Now, that's not true of justice. And as, when it comes to justice, most humans disagree with injustice. You know, from the age of two or three, a child can say, that's not fair. And it's <laughs> an instinctive cry of humanity. So we agree over injustice, but where we disagree strongly, and I have two chapters in this, as you know, is how we address it. And the biblical way of addressing injustice is so much deeper and richer and more effective than the radical left, which is disastrous. Now, I'm curious. So this is your, you said you've, you've spent time considering the topic of freedom. Uh, at what point, so in terms of uh, maybe even going back to the French Revolution and, and the freedom that they sought after, uh, they're saying with their mouths they would like freedom. And as you're kind of illustrating, they even the new atheists, that's they were determinists. They're not actually interested in in freedom, sort of as we know the word. At what point do you do you believe them? Uh, like, is it something else that they're after? It seems to me always that that uh, maybe what they're telling us is is not quite honest. Well, it's not quite honest in the sense that it never works out. And we've got to look at history, and you come to the simple, blunt conclusion: revolution on the radical left has never worked, and the oppression has never ended. Hmm. Now, why is that? Let's give them credit. They long for freedom, just as they long for justice. But the way they pursue it is disastrous. I mean, take freedom. Freedom is a means, not an end. Freedom is the ability to be who we are, to speak freely and to act freely and so on. It's a means. Whenever it's made an end and then an idol, it's disastrous. So you know Lord Acton's great distinction. Is freedom the permission to do what you like or the power to do what you ought? The second is the biblical view. In other words, true freedom requires truth and character and a way of life. And the idea of a libertarianism of unbridled, unfettered freedom always ends up the opposite. You have this magnificently in Dostoevsky, for instance, Kirillov, in his book, you either entitled The Demons or Possessed, he said, I started with unfettered liberty, and I always end with unbounded despotism. And that's, that's right. what the radical left does. And even, so to we, your, uh, even to the justice side of that, I feel like in, uh, in Brothers Karamazov, when uh, Alyosha's brother says that he, he has a, uh, a love for humanity, that ends up being, you know, a despisal of anyone around him. No, absolutely. <laughs> and see, you take the radical left and their view of victims. You know, they analyze what they call discourse. How does society talk? Looking for majority, minority, oppressor, victim. But when you find a victim, usually a prop or a pawn, 
It's not the victim in himself made in the image of God who's precious, but a prop or a pawn. You're using them, you're weaponizing them in order to try and overthrow the status quo. In other words, as they see it, God is dead and truth is dead. So all that's left, power. So you're setting up an endless conflict of power. And at the end of the day, you, you end up where the Romans saw with what they called the peace of despotism. In other words, you only have peace when you have a power capable of putting down all other powers, authoritarianism. In other words, disaster. And you can see why, and my book has much more in it than that, you can see why the radical left and its revolutions never succeed. Your chapters five and six that were on uh, set free to live free together, which was on the Constitution, and then, and then six, which was on transmission. How do you pass this on? How do you essentially take all of the, what we believe, the things that make us distinct, the things that offer us that freedom, and pass it on to the next generation? And as I got to those chapters, I had this feeling of everything up till then was exactly right. It felt like, uh, yep, you can cross that off. I can mentally assent to that. When you got to five and six, it felt like, oh no, it's about to go on the ground and we're sort of entrusting people to do this, uh, to live it out. And then I immediately started getting insecure in terms of, oh no, it's going to go bad for sure. <laughs> Did you feel that as you oh, wrote that? No, but you're right, Jake, in this sense. You take, you know, chapter five is on the constitution and behind it, the Hebrew notion of covenant, which is quite unique. Right. And among the many things that are decisive about it, one is freely chosen consent. The other is a morally binding pledge. Now, put simply, that means covenantalism as a political way of life depends on people keeping promises. In other words, when people make a promise and keep their promise, they have integrity. You can trust them. And where you have high trust, you have high freedom. Right. You don't have to watch them all the time. Where you have low trust, you have low freedom, and you have to have high control through surveillance. Take the two billion Chinese cameras watching everyone in China. Now, take that seriously. In the postmodern world, there's no truth. Why on earth should you keep your promise? Right. As David Hume said, you, you made a promise yesterday. Why should that bind you today? And all we think about is the present. You take generationalism or presentism. It's a generational thing you wouldn't understand. We owe nothing to the past. We owe nothing to our grandchildren. All we care about is ourselves. So the problem, even in the Bible with covenantalism, God keeps his word. We don't. And that's why you have to have renewal and restoration. So you take something, that all that sounds abstract. You take something like the kneeling controversy with Colin Kaepernick. That's the opposite of Martin Luther King. For Martin Luther King, attacking slavery, racism, the declaration was what he called a promissory note. It promised and never cashed it in for the African-Americans. And he said, it's time to cash it in. With the kneeling controversy, they're disrespecting the anthem and the flag all of which point back, and the pledge, all of which point back to the declaration. In other words, they're disrespecting the promissory note. And the fact is that that kneeling controversy comes out not from the American Revolution, but from the alternative revolution, which will lead to disaster. But of course, you don't have American leaders who understand the significance 
like Lincoln did. So there was no good answer to it from President Trump or anyone else. That's right. Now, with transmission, there could be a sense when you look when you look around right now and see the state of sort of the ruins that we're, we're living in in the West, that there could be an inevitability to a, a sort of like the telephone game of, of our ideals that, you know, you transmit it, you pass it on generation to generation, and, and it's inevitable that you're going to lose the essence of that. Do you believe that or, or do you see it differently? I don't think that's the problem. Okay. There's not even an attempt to pass it on. <laughs> I think we need to go back to the basic idea. And I, I quote Rabbi Sachs, you know, if you have any project, any sort, that lasts more than a single generation, you need two things, the school and history. And America's abandoned both. Yeah. And that's tragic. Now, I don't need to say that to you people centered in <laughs> Moscow, Idaho, with all that you're standing for. But you can see, again, as the rabbis say, what did Moses talk about the night of the Passover? They're going free. He never mentioned freedom. They're going to the promised land of milk and honey, their own land. He never mentions it. Three times he talks about children. Because the story we tell to our children is the key, one, to identity, and two, to continuity. So that used to be called civic education. Right. And it was part of what was called the melting pot in the public schools. So people, whether they were Irish or Chinese or Mexican or French or whatever, became American. They were integrated, assimilated, Americanized through civic education in the public schools. And of course, as you know, through multiculturalism, Horace Callan, and things like that, that was thrown out in the 1960s. But not only that, it was replaced by Howard Zinn and more recently by the 1619 Project. So young Americans are being taught a view of America which is opposed to the American Revolution. Well, now, put simply, that is suicidal. Right. But it's not only suicidal, it's stupid, immensely stupid. Now, the tragedy is that's true in much of the church. Transmission's broken down. And it's true in the country. So both faith in the church and freedom in America are in a bad shape because it's not being passed on. There's there's also a, uh, there seems to be, you kind of cover it in, 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 I believe, in the final chapters of your book. There's a, a seemingly sweeping Puritanism, that, uh, like a wicked Puritanism that's going through. And, and you describe them as intransigent unforgivers. Can you tell us about them a little bit? Well, you probably read Douglas's Murray, Douglas Murray's book, The Dangerous Madness of Crowds. Yes. Murray's an English writer, and he's conservative, but he's an atheist and a gay. But one of the features he critiques of the radical left is its mercilessness. Absolutely no forgiveness. Take the cancel culture, the statue topplers, you know, the old notion you're innocent until proven guilty. Today, as soon as you're attacked, you're guilty if you can survive to prove yourself innocent. And right. often you can't survive. You're hurried off to the social media guillotine as fast as they can get you there, and so on. There's a mercilessness. Now, I haven't gone into the whole biblical view of how we address injustice, but one of the features is forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is unique in human history in its connection with freedom. Someone forgiven 
the wrong, the guilt, the burden of the past, gone. Take Pilgrim's burden in Pilgrim's Progress. But not only that, the future is opened up as a future of a second chance. And that is a radical idea and the very opposite of the mercilessness of the radical left. So read the story of the French Revolution, Simon Chamo, someone like that. Violence and the reign of terror are absolutely horrifying with the lack of mercy. But that was true, too, of much of the left today. And so we got to contrast the gospel and the scriptures as a whole with what's happening in the left. And I'm profoundly troubled by how many young Christians and how many Christian pastors in places like California who, frankly, have drunk the Kool-Aid. In other words, they heard the word justice or injustice and immediately leapt to their feet and saluted right? and didn't ask the sources of where the ideas come from. In other words, Thank God we are the heirs of the, the prophets. That's right. Micah, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah. These are the first great voices in history tackling the abuse of power. And thank God for great reformers like Bartolome de las Casas in the 16th century, or John Woolman, or William Wilberforce, or the Earl of Shaftesbury, Martin Luther King, and others, all followers of Jesus and passionate champions of justice. Those are our heroes, not Black Lives Matter and critical race theory. And you have things like Jamar Tisby, the color of compromise and so on. That's critical race theory light and not biblical. I was horrified when I read his single page on William Wilberforce. Oh, no. The cost of that man standing a lifetime against slavery, and he dismisses it in terms of Marxist theory. Disgusting stuff. At, it seems at stake here with with all that, uh, as you mentioned, not, not too many people are interested in history, but given all of, uh, of America's history and where we are today and the civilization that we, luckily, we still see s- certain elements standing. And, and as I read your book, there's a quote that Pastor Wilson says, in terms of the free markets, that it requires free hearts and that it won't work otherwise. Free markets won't work without free hearts, without Christian hearts. That seems to be sort of a, 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 to line up well with your book. And, and it brings me to my final question for you. You, t- you say in the, near the conclusion that the, the choice before America now is simple but stark. Revolution, oligarchy, or homecoming. Do you have an idea? What do you think America will choose? I have no idea, Jake. <laughs> You know, I think a simple Christian principle is that because God has made humans significant and free and capable of choice, I've said before you, good and bad, life and death, choose. Later, Joshua, following Moses, choose today whom you will serve. In other words, the one thing we do not know, and the pandemic has surely reminded us, The modern sense of mastery through the control of reason and science and technology and management and punditry is an idol of rationalism. And we pretend we know more than we do. We don't. So the one thing we do not know, or the Lord does, what tomorrow will bring. So unless the Lord tells me, I can't tell you. And many of the people of the so-called prophets today have been proved wrong because they've 
really just projected things they're feeling in various ways. So I haven't a clue which way it will go. But what we do know is the choice which today's challenges set up. And we've got a challenge on friends and our neighbors and our fellow citizens. Which way are they going to choose? Because this is the Rubicon moment. Amen. Agreed. Thank you so much, Oz Guinness, for stopping by. Go get his brand new The Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith, and the Future of Freedom. I imagine it's everywhere books are sold. Thanks so much for coming on today, sir. My pleasure, Jake. God bless. Cheers. Cheers.